0: My name is Jeff Lerner, and I interview elite performers from a wide range of disciplines, entrepreneurs, athletes, celebrities, scientists, artists, and more. This is Unlock Your Potential. Welcome to another episode of Unlock Your Potential. This is Jeff Lerner, your host. Always thrilled to be back here with you, getting to have amazing conversations with amazing humans. And today, we have a doozy for you. I think I might have met the world's most interesting man. I don't know. The jury's out. You are the jury. If you're listening to this, you're the jury. And uh, by the end, we're all going to weigh in. Weigh in in the comments. Let me set you up. Leave a comment if you like the show or at least weigh in and say, was this truly the world's most interesting man or is it the guy from the Dos Equis commercial? His name is Bruce Feiler. He is a seven times New York Times bestselling author. Uh, his latest book, Life is in the Transitions, presenter of two primetime series on PBS, Walking the Bible and Sacred Journeys, he inspired an NBC series called Council of Dads. He's had two TED Talks, not just one, but two, uh, one of which was viewed over 2 million times. You know, I say this a lot because I do get really interesting people on the show, but in this case, it's especially true. We could sit here for an hour and I could just read you his resume We can just, and then wrap the show. But instead, let's talk to Bruce. Bruce, welcome to the show.
1: I'm delighted to be here. When are you bringing on the world's most interesting man? I'm excited to meet him. No, no. I, I think this is this is
0: the test. I think we might have. Um, we're going to introduce you to how interesting you truly are. I, I mean, I've been fascinated. I've, I've been lightly stalking you since I heard you were booked on the show. And I'm like, oh, wait, I've seen that guy. I've seen the, the TED Talk. I'm pretty sure I've seen the PBS series where you basically go walk around like you, all the all the long arduous journeys they talk about in the Bible, you actually went and like did those like on foot,
1: right? Three continents, five countries, four war zones, as I'm fond of saying. I climbed Mount Ararat looking for Noah's Ark. I crossed the Red Sea. I tasted manna. I spent weeks in the desert. So, and in fact, I did it twice because once I did it for the book Walking the Bible, and then then I did it again with a film crew for PBS. Wow.
0: So yeah. So like I said, I, I actually before I ever actually knew your name, I knew there was a show about some dude walking around, you know, all these bi- biblical treks. So I was really stoked when when we saw you were coming on the show. And I mean, your resume, you know, I, I even saw uh, James Beard Awards, and I'm like, wait, that's for like cooking, and that's for like chefs. And then I looked it up, and it's like, oh, you used to be a food writer, right, for Gourmet magazine. So. I'm just gonna like open up with a, a broad question. You know, you've had an incredibly interesting career. I assume you think it's interesting. I, as I, I think it's interesting. Um, most people in this world don't get to have such interesting careers. Most people kind of do one thing and they do it until they hopefully can retire. How would you say you have managed to create for yourself such a rich and diverse and interesting life that is so unlike anybody else I've ever met. Like what's the secret?
1: The secret is that I'm uninteresting and therefore I have (laughs) decided that the only way for me to be interesting, to stick with the, 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 uh, to beat this horse to death is to go out and do interesting things. Right, so I I I think that in an odd kind of way, that's how I see it. Like I, you know, there's multiple ways of telling the story of my life as the story of all lives. Uh, We can tell them in multiple ways, but you know, one way of telling it is that I grew up, you know, in 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 Savannah, Georgia, right, in a suburb, and you know, I went to school and I played sports and played piano, played sports mediocrely and played piano poorly. And, um, uh, f- and, and then left there and went to college in, you know, in this case in new England. And I found that I kind of learned about myself as a Southerner by leaving the South and going to the North. Right. And so I, I sort of found that process of dislocation, um, Exciting and revealing and Mm -hmm. interesting, for lack of a better word. And this was the 80s. And it was the age of discount airfare. And I was like, Oh, well, the next logical thing is to leave the country. So I spent the second half of my junior year at Yale in Japan. And on my and this is a kind of where it all began in a lot of ways is I was staying with this family I didn't speak a word of uh, Japanese they didn't speak a word of English in fact I'm you can't tell on this Zoom but I'm somewhat tall I'm almost six two and mm-hmm. and this family in Japan only had a short bed and they went around to all of their neighbors and got microwave and TV boxes and put them at the end of the bed so that my feet didn't stick out. Right. Like This was like this incredibly warm and welcoming thing. And it was all going well. And then the mother of this homestay family, her name is Makiko, who had like a little, like two, two almost like science project, um, I don't know what do you call them of like a, 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 a stovetop kind of things mm-hmm. and a micro like, like that was all like one. little burn, little burner, little burners like that was yeah, the yeah. whole kitchen. She produces this like 10-course meal. It was the most amazing thing, and it and the highlight: what do you serve someone when they're a guest in your home? Your favorite dish, speaking of gourmet magazine, where I, as you said, I won three James Beard Awards. Her marquee dish was liver pie. Now, <laughs> I will go anywhere I've been to 90 countries in my life. I will like talk to, I'll ask almost anybody almost any question. I will eat almost anything, but liver would be on the short list of things that I would not eat. So what what kind of liver? Beef? It was yeah, it was beef liver. Beef it was, liver. Okay. It was like it would look like an apple pie. It was like that kind of crust, and inside was liver. And I okay. like suffered through this liver pie because I'm trying to make a good impression, right? Because I'm like the good, you know, suburban kid from Georgia. And I go upstairs and I sleep in my bed with the b- 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 microwave boxes. And I get up and I learn my first lesson about life in Japan. And that is that breakfast is cold leftovers mm. from the night before. So I'm served cold liver pie on a Sunday morning. And I had, this will date me to all of the kids out there listening. But um, I got up and I had a pad of crinkly airmail paper. Now, for those of you who don't know, it's like an onion skin paper. It's very thin. There were no lines. In fact, the pad had lines so that you wouldn't have to write everywhere. And I wrote a letter home, like, you're not going to believe what happened to me. And I wrote one of these letters, essentially, probably four or five times a week for the next six months. And when I got back to Georgia, everywhere I went, people said, I'd love your letters. And I was like, great. Have we met? And it turned out that my grandmother had Xeroxed them back when they had Xerox machines and passed them around. And this letter went viral in the sort of the old-fashioned sense of the word. And I'm like, well, if this is that interesting to me and to all these other people, like I should write a book about it. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know anyone who'd ever written a book. right? I literally went to the library, the Chatham Effingham Public Library in Savannah, Georgia, and got out the only book on... This was before the internet, of course. The only book on publishing, which was a book about propaganda in World War II. Is like, that, what's that? Go, is that Goebbels? Yeah, I, mean, I don't. I think it was American propaganda. But oh, still, okay. the, the point is that how we countered Goebbels and how we countered, for the record, the Japanese.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. Okay.
1: And so this was, and 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 this was an absurd idea. This was unhelpful. My mother ran into someone like at the Piggly Wiggly, who's like daughter had written a book on temping, and she's like, "Oh, my son has an agent, and one thing leads to another." And it doesn't happen this way, but I sold my first book at 24 and I've never held a job since. And it was this process of like going to places, interesting, unusual, out of my comfort zone, becoming a part of them because I am two things fundamentally. I am an experientialist. Okay. I like having experiences and then I'm an explainaholic. And so I like go to these places and then I like telling what happened to me. And I sold my first book at 24 and I've lived this life. With the single-minded obsession of like, can I get to do it again?
0: That's a fascinating story. So let me get this straight: your grandmother, without permission or disclosure, was publishing your letters home and distributing them locally around town. Well, she wasn't publishing them in the newspaper, or, or she, was she was printing was, them. She was
1: printing them, and yes. people would pass them around, and 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 it's sort of. You know it's what is going viral today on the internet I Meaning like people are interested right and so it, it it just communicated to me that this that this kind of way and by the way again to again date myself this was a time when you could not own a, open a newspaper back when we had newspapers um and read an article about japan like that was the center of the world in 19 in the 1980s and so it just seemed like oh well i should do this and this is a basically all I've ever
0: Yeah, the, the 1980s, Japan was the second largest yes. economy in the world. And it was, you know, that's like the whole Toyota, you know, automotive revolution and manufacturing revolution, right? Mitsubishi, <laughs> electronics revolution. Like, it was a big Sony, deal. Yeah, yeah, everything.
1: And everybody wanted to understand it because it was mysterious. In fact, I was, you know, the only foreigner in this town of like 50,000 people when I was teaching. So it was, they were new In fact, the program that I was in was actually run by the Japanese government, and it was designed to take foreigners and stick them in rural Japan, specifically to teach them, the Japanese, to be more international. So you weren't even in a big city. No, 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 I was in the middle of nowhere. Um, And so I wrote this book called Learning to Bow, and- this is what my life has been like. So um, I'm amazed that we're in this, whatever, five minutes in this conversation. I'm interested. In, and you haven't also mentioned mentioned one of the stranger things about me, which is, so then I wrote a book about Japan. Then I wrote a book about Oxford and Cambridge based on a master's degree. And then I spent a year in the circus. Yeah, um, that's right. And, You're a, you were a clown. <laughs> I, I was a clown in okay. Clyde Betty Cole Brothers Circus. And I wrote this book called Under the Big Top. Um, and then I was in Nashville writing a book about country music. And at that time, I was living across the street from three churches and I thought, well, you know, I should be more conversant with the Bible because I hadn't really read the Bible since I was a kid. So I put my bar mitzvah Bible by my shelf and it sat there for two years gathering dust. And I went to see an old friend in Jerusalem. And on my first day, my friend said, here's this controversial neighborhood. Here's the rock where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And I was like, whoa, like these are real places you can feel. That's when I had this idea to retrace the Bible. And so that's walking the Bible came out of that. And then basically that was a, a big book. It's been a year and a half on the bestseller list. And I spent basically the next decade going back, making books and making television um, about religion. And this was in the nine 11 years. And so everybody, this was yeah. the front of the, front of the world at that time.
0: <laughs> so immediate question that jumps to mind for me and to contextualize a little bit and for the audience too, you know, and, and the audience in general, I would say of this show is people that are like looking to live. They're either, they've either made the, the transition to living more, you know, off the beaten path lives than say the norm, or they're thinking about it, right? Like unlocking right. your potential. Plus I'm an entrepreneurial teacher and educator. And so it's kind of like this, what, what does the road less traveled look like? And maybe I want to go walk it. That's sort of the audience, the, the, the zeitgeist of the show. Right. So, For context, or or one of the most important contextual considerations for anybody living, looking to live that sort of non-traditional life, and and you've pretty much like you know embody that to a T, is like what about responsibilities? So I'm curious. I know you're married. I know you have kids. Were you married during any of this time when you were off gallivanting around doing all this crazy stuff? And and to the extent, and and you you probably still are off gallivanting around. Right. Exactly. So, so
1: the, the short answer to this is um, <clears throat> the person I married is a gallivander, right? So ah, nice. for, for, for much of this time, the answer to that was no. Right. So in my 20s, I started early doing this and um, was into my 30s. And sooner or later through this whole process, I ended up uh, back in, in New York. You know, you said you were a compulsive hydrator. I didn't realize you actually were going to be drinking from a um, from a rooftop, um, <laughs> from a rooftop New York City apartment building water tower. But okay. yeah, exactly. Every Every day this whole thing disappears. So um, I end up in New York. And I start, you know, and I'm dating and I end up meeting this woman who would become my wife. Her name is Linda. And I should talk a little bit about her because in fact, she's the entrepreneur in the family. So her name Mm. is Linda Rotenberg. She started and um, co-founded and runs an organization called Endeavor that supports high impact entrepreneurs in 41 countries around the world. So they have screened um, a quarter of a million entrepreneurs and picked um, uh, I don't think twenty five thousand at this point, who last year had ten billion dollars of revenue. So mm. entrepreneurship literally is pillow talk um, in my um, uh, in my family. And you know, in fact, when you started this riff about interesting at the top, I have to say the scene that came to my mind was, um, in um, almost twenty years ago, in two thousand and three, in my hometown of Savannah, when we got married, um, the twin rabbis who were actually were doing this married, a marriage actually said, when describing what I do, like, who does what you do? Right. And also when talking about what she does said, um, who does what you do? And I think that what we, one of the things that we connected about is that we both have these non-traditional lives, but we also in a kind of a certain way come from traditional backgrounds and want to have a traditional family. And so I think. Um, it, it is that commitment to have what we now have—seventeen-year-old um, identical twin daughters—to always have a parent on the children means that we spend a lot of time juggling yeah. these um, these various lives. And so, I, I guess I want to I want to put a flag. And this, of course, has become as we get toward my work today, the essence of what I'm doing. I, I want to put a flag that you can have a non-traditional work life and a traditional family life, if that is what you want. Um, And I think if anything, I would go, I don't even think it's out on a limb to say the world today is more welcoming of non-traditional work lives than at any time, probably in the last 2000 years of work. In fact, the abnorm is becoming the norm. I've actually written a new book, just turned it in last week, that will be out in um, the spring of 2023, specifically about having non-traditional work lives and how people do it and how to find it out. Um, So maybe that will tee up a future conversation. But the essence of what I'm doing now, and I've been doing the last five years, is trying to identify what are the elements of you know, kind of linear lives, as I call them and non-linear lives. And how can we get ourselves out of the trap that life is traditional life is linear life follows a customary path because it turns out that that path that many of us are raised on, that's the aberration.
0: Man. Thank you for s- saying what I believe more artfully than I usually do. <laughs> And uh, I, I notice your your newsletter is called the Nonlinear Life, which is great. So, you know, I think you really nailed something that's so important and that I really see as a need in the market. Um, you know, if if I look at the call it the entrepreneurial thought leader influencer space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's that's a pretty broad category. But you know, if I think of sort of like some guys that come to mind, um, Gary V. Definitely, I think he's divorced now, but he never really talked like any other kid, but like n- never talks about his family, right? Ty Lopez, as far as I know, doesn't have one. Uh you know, who else? I don't know who else comes to mind. Grant Cardone, non-tradition, like very, definitely super into family, but not it really doesn't seem very relatable. He like flies around on jets all the time with their homeschool teacher, and like the family goes, you know. Right. It's like there's nobody who's like just going home every day at six o'clock to eat dinner and play with the kids and live in a, you know, a house that maybe people can relate to, but is also, I don't, I shouldn't say there's nobody. That's a, that's a gross overstatement, but you know what I mean? Like, that's not the norm. Like, like what you're describing is like people that are out there living their dream, living their passion, living the exact life that they would design in their perfect world. And yet also fitting in checking all the boxes of quote, Normal, high-functioning, family-balanced life—it um, is. There's sort of a false dichotomy in the in right. the marketplace as an either-or, right? And you're right. you're totally right that that's not right. And thank you for.
1: proving It's definitely that. not right, and it's definitely not right. This is a bit fascinating conversation, right? And I, I will pick up the story in a second of how I ended up thinking about this and devoting, you know, much of the last uh, half a decade to thinking about it. And I will get to that in a second. But just to frame it for a second. What I want to say is if you've used this linear, non-linear um, idea as a poll, and I'm going to explain what that means in a second, um, I, I think that the, not the proper, but the right way to look at it is that even people who have linearity in certain aspects of their lives, like let's say a long-standing relationship or a long-standing job, right, mm-hmm. or a commitment to raising children, have non-linearity elsewhere in their lives. Maybe they've had medical ups and downs. Maybe they you know maybe they've gone through addiction and are now in recovery, okay? Or maybe they've gone through family changes. So n- what, what what nobody has is complete linearity. Yeah, but also what no one has is complete nonlinearity either. Like we, we, it's a, it's a constant struggle. So with that frame to, to kind of meet your moment, let me just go back in the story and tell you how I ended up here, because the story that I'm telling you, in the frame that i have now is a kind of linear life like i figure out what i want to do early i do it for no money for a long time then i have huge success i get married and i have children and at you know if you you know if we were having this conversation when i was 40 i would have been that guy that you didn't like right you know who who, who appeared to sort of have it all in a lot of ways hmm. but then in my 40s i was just bombarded With life, okay. First, as you know, I got cancer, um, a rare aggressive cancer in my left leg. When we had three-year-old twin daughters, Hmm. like that was incredibly uh, disruptive. You mentioned the Council of Dads. What I did, in partly in response to that, was to ask a group of friends to be present in the lives of my children in the event that I died. I wrote a memoir about this called The Council of Dads. It became a series on NBC. But I also had financial trouble. My family owned in the recession of 2008. My family owned real estate in Georgia that all got wiped out. Um, and then my dad, who has Parkinson's, got very uh, depressed um, and tried to take his own life six times in 12 weeks. So this was, by any measure, a crisis, and really what it was is what I've come to call a pileup, like one crisis on top of another, uh, on top of another. And I didn't know what to do, and especially as somebody who is, by this point, a professional storyteller, I didn't know how to tell the story of my life. Like, how do you tell this part? Do you not yeah. tell? Do you share? Do you overshare? Do you keep this quiet? Do you suffer silently? You know, do you tell everybody, You know, how are you doing? Well, do you really want to know? Let's go into it. You know, th- no, I didn't know how to do it. And what ha- what I began to realize and I sort of experienced it firsthand is when I did start to tell this story, everybody had their own version. Mm. Everybody had one or some collection of times when the life they were living was not the life they expected to live. Like that they were living life out of order. Like that was sort of the idea that was vivid in my mind. Like people were saying like, this isn't supposed to be happening to me. Like I'm not that person. Why is this happening to me? I thought I was going to have the orderly life I expected and I am not. And um, this sort of all came to head at a college reunion um, uh, of now five years ago. And I called my wife and I was like, you know what? No one knows how to tell their story anymore. And I really, the core way I live my life, as I've said over and over again, was go enter an interesting world. Like, what if I enter the world of, oh my God, my life is overwhelming and I don't know what to do about it. Let Mm. me enter that world. And so what I did was I created this thing called the Life Story Project and I began Crisscrossing the country, collecting what became hundreds and hundreds of life stories of people who went through all sorts of changes. They lost limbs, they lost homes, they changed careers, they changed religions, they got sober, they got out of bad marriages. And I ultimately ended up with 250 stories, 10,000 hours, 10,000 pages of transcripts. And I got a team of people. And I spent a year coding them. Like I would do these conversations over and like kind of what you do professionally now. Mm-hmm. And I would hear certain patterns. And I was like, oh, some people move or like some people have emotion. Like, and I wanted to understand. So we then spent a year coding these for what became dozens and dozens of variables. And what became the big idea that emerged is that this idea of a linear life, right? That you're going to have one job, one relationship, one home, one spirituality, one sexuality, one source of hap- happiness that's gone. It's like it's gone and it's been replaced by what I call the nonlinear life. And I was like, I got to understand more about this.
0: Do, do you think it's been replaced or do you think that it was always a, a false construct, like an illusion from the beginning?
1: Well, that's, that's a really key question and it's a hard question. And, and let me answer it this way. And this will get back to something that we had talked about earlier. It turns out that this idea of linearity, it's the aberration. Yeah. So what I mean by that is I spent a lot of time in the ancient world. Remember, I come out of this after Mm -hmm. 10 years of writing and thinking about religion. And one thing you learn in the ancient world is that there's no time, right? There is no linear time, like to every season, turn, turn, turn. Like our, our sense of our law of selves is shaped by our sense of the outside world, basically. Okay. So if we think life is agricultural, and follows a seasonal path. Mm -hmm. We think that's what life should be. And that's what they thought largely in the ancient world. It actually is the Bible. Wait, Sorry. That's what they called what? That's sort of the idea of a cyclical time. Okay. So the life, like you, your, your life is going to be in cycles that you're not in control of it. Like it's bigger than you. Right. (laughs) And, and you're just going to go through these cycles. Like everybody else goes through these cycles. Mm it's actually the bible in the west that introduces the idea of linear time and so by the middle ages they begin to think that and they have another shape of life it's not a cycle it's a staircase so they say life is a staircase up to middle age mm-hmm. it peaks in middle age and then it's downhill from there and by the way i you know in the book life is in the transitions you know which i'm going to get to in a second i have these visuals like men have it women have it like think how confining that is there's no starting a new company at 44 there's no moving to florida and opening yeah. a, a bnb or an airbnb right you know it's it's straight up and then straight down there's no new love there's no second chances there's no third acts it's very very rigid okay mm-hmm. and what's interesting is that's the opposite of how we all were raised those of us who were raised in the 20th century were middle age is the bottom but let's keep going with the story so then mm-hmm. science the birth of science comes along and it introduces this idea of linearity. So clocks become widespread in the, in the 1800s. And then everybody thinks, and then what is, how do they look at the world? It's the industrial revolution. It's the conveyor belt. It's right. the assembly line. And, and sure enough, all the ways people talked about life were Piaget. We have stages as children, Freud, their psychosexual stages, the eight stages of moral development, the five stages of grief. We could list them for an hour, right? They're all linear constructs because that's how the world worked at that time. And this reaches its peak in the seventies, a woman named Gail Sheehy writes a book called passages, which says everyone does the same thing in their twenties and their thirties. And then everyone has a quote unquote midlife crisis, right? right. And it was again, so rigid at 30, it said, you must start by 39 and you must end by 44 and a half. Like that's how restrictive it was. And that's where the idea of the midlife crisis comes. It's all bunk. It's not true. Just think about the pandemic. If you were between 39 and 44 and a half, you were having a midlife crisis. But if you're between 24 and 29, you were having a crisis or 62 and 74 or my teenagers. So the point is, we now know with the internet and, 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 and network theory and you know, connectivity we now in chaos theory, all of these things, we now know that life is nonlinear, but what hasn't happened is we haven't adjusted our expectation of how our lives are going to unfold. So basically, we, we're still haunted by the ghost of linearity. Yeah. Was it ever linear? I don't think so, but you couldn't escape the fact that that's how everybody talked about development. We were all basically washing machines that went along on a conveyor belt that after a time, you know, had built in obsolescence. And then we were over, you know, we were thrown in the junk heap and then a new washing, a new washing machine would come along. That's not the way it works.
0: So I'm curious. um, And I'm going to, I'm going to bring what you just said sort of into my camp for a minute. Um, I'm going to appropriate it for my purposes, if you will. Please. So uh, a big part of my mission and my work in the world is around education, right? Like um, I'm, I consider myself sort of an educational disruptor um, and I'm trying to prepare people for like, kind of to your point, like we still think the world is linear, but the world isn't. And my premise is that there's a way, there's a completely different way to educate people about how to thrive in a, in a non, in a world that is explicitly non-linear. Correct. Right. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts or if you've done any analysis around like the way we're educating, you know, children and adults, frankly, um, for a world that you're positing doesn't really exist anymore. And frankly, may never have existed. And I'm certainly on the of the camp that it's changed and it definitely doesn't exist anymore. So, like, how should we be teaching people differently the skills for a nonlinear existence versus a linear existence? Hey, it's Jeff here. If you're getting value out of this podcast, please, if you would, leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. It really, really helps us get the word out and it should only take you about 30 seconds. Thanks so much. Now let's get back to the show.
1: So I think, well, this is my work now and this is my life. And and so I think we are speaking the same language and I'm happy to talk about how it might work in a particular business context context, but let me, let me take a half a spec back and sort of say what I learned. Okay. So the first thing I learned is that the linear life is dead. It's been replaced by the nonlinear life and the nonlinear life. uh, I have all this data. So let's use your language. And it happens to be the language that I use. So the average person will go through three dozen disruptors as I call them in the course of their lives. That's one every 12 to 18 months. Okay. That's like more often than most people see the dentist. Um, and most of these we get through very, you know, pretty well, like it turns out we're pretty adaptive. A disruptor can be as small as twisting your ankle or having a fender bender or as big as losing a loved one. Did did you say three dozen? Three dozen. Three
0: dozen significant disruptions like zigs or zags in the supposedly linear path.
1: Okay. Let me quibble only with the word disruptor. Three dozen disruptors in our lives, small, medium or large. Okay. Most of them are relatively easy to get through, but one in 10 of them becomes significant. So one in 10 of them becomes a big, massive change. This is what I call a life quake, and that one is bigger. Um, so that one is a sort of, uh, it's either a disruptor on steroids, Or it's a massive shared disruptor, like say the pandemic was, Mm -hmm. or it's a pileup of multiple disruptors, right? Okay. Just when you lose your job, you know, your, you know, your spouse is, is, is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and your child has an anxiety disorder. So suddenly life is completely overwhelming to you. That's a life quake. And we have three to five of those in a lifetime. And so if you, and, Mm -hmm. and here, here's a key piece of data. The average length to get through them, five years. So if you do the math, three to five in a lifetime, four, five, six years, that's 25 years. That's half of our adult lives we are, we are spending in this state of disruption. And the way you get through a life quake is a life transition. Okay? So think of it this way. Think of the life quake puts you on your heels. And the life transition is what puts you back on your toes, okay? So the three kind of big lessons of the Life Story Project is, number one, the linear life is dead. Number two, the nonlinear life involves many more life transitions. And the third beat is exactly what you just asked me, which is life transitions are a skill that we can and must master. Mm. And so we, c- it's breakable down. I've got phases, I've got tools, as you know, I'm happy to go through them. And a, this, this is
0: in, in your book, life is in the transitions. You have kind of the tool that the transition toolkit
1: in, in life is in the transitions. There is a transition toolkit. There is a Ted talk, the secrets of mastering a life transition where you can get it in 17 minutes. Wow. You can subscribe to my newsletter, the nonlinear life all this is available if you go to brucefiler.com. Um, and twice a week, I am analyzing and talking about this. I've done another 150 stories. I'm now up to 400. I've written a book about nonlinear work lives uh, called The Search that will be out in the spring of 2023. So this is my life. My life is, we are going through transitions all the time. We have to normalize the transition because the, this gets to the heart of what what I think we're, where we have a lot in common. We have thought and talked about the the, the life quakes, the disruptors, and the transitions as the aberrant time. Okay, mm. I just got to suffer. Think of the language. We have to grit our way through, right? We have to be resilient. Right. Well, resilient is a linear term. The word resilient comes from a spring. It actually has to do with the physics of how much how much of flexibility there is in the spring, and then the spring bounce back bounces back. That's mm-hmm. not what happens a small number of people bounce back. Many more people bounce forward or sideways or a different place entirely. So I want to say, if we're just suffering through this, we're missing half our lives. Let's find a life in the transitions. Let's find the renewal. Let's find the growth. And let's use these as opportunities to remake ourselves because that's the opportunity that life gives us.
0: You know, I love I love word origins. I'm kind of like, if if Google, if you could see like a, Word cloud oh, of my too. Google searches. Yeah. Literally, the word etymology. I guarantee yeah. you would be the biggest word. So I just search the word resilient, and it comes from the Latin resiliere to leap back. Yes, and and I love what you're saying because we really ought to be looking at these as opportunities to leap forward.
1: Bingo, or sideways, uh, or, or, or or yeah, or, leap yeah. elsewhere. <laughs> yep.
0: Um, but there outside. is no, you know, return to normal so to speak. Um, and, I, man, and by the way, I mean, let's just
1: talk about the pandemic is a great yeah. example of that, because when, you know, when, when the first thing happened we were everyone was quarantined, we all thought we're going to suffer for six weeks and we're going to go back. And, and we were never going back. And it yeah. took a while to say goodbye. That's why the, of the three phases of a life transition, the first is the long goodbye. It's accepting that you're not going back. Okay. And then that leads to the messy middle, which is sort of, you know, shedding habits and creating new ones. And the new beginning is embracing whatever direction you're going. But yes, you have to give up the idea that we're not going back.
0: Yeah. And I think this is, you know, fundamentally, if you think about the educational system where like there really is linear thinking and there's this this progression, it's this idea of life progression. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it starts in school, but essentially they're pre- Conditioning kids that you're going to be on this linear progression, you know, path till you die, um, and 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 really, like you even said, like the long goodbye. The simple fact that we have to have like this long, drawn out, emotional goodbye is only because we haven't been prepared for the fact that these things are going to happen, and really you shouldn't make a big deal about it. Like if you already knew the person was leaving, like for the, for the last five years, you've been like, I know this person's gonna not live with me forever. Then like, you don't need to spend six months saying goodbye. You're just like, oh, bye. I knew this day was coming. Have a, have a nice life and, and move on to the next thing. But it's like the fact that we're so caught off guard yes. when the unexpected, ha- it's like the unexpected should be the expected at this point. But we're, but we're still teaching kids that life is this expectable, predictable, plannable thing.
1: I think that that's right, and now we get to the pandemic again because I think that, that that if it's taught us anything, it's it's the it's the problem with that actually. Okay, so let me just talk about this for a second. So I have all these I have all these life quakes, and I decide to break them down, and I, I did it on two axes. Okay. So the first one I did on, okay, so what's a life quake? As I said, a life quake is losing a loved one, it's losing a limb, it's losing your job, but it's also quitting a job or it's also, Mm -hmm. you know, moving to a new place as we see in, uh, I just wrote a piece on my newsletter about, you know, 10 million Americans have relocated uh, since the pandemic uh, began and red state people are moving to blue states and blue states to red states. It's interesting, it kind of, it it breaks it down, um, um, a, a lot of the divisions that we think we see. So the first way I divided these lifequakes was voluntary versus involuntary, okay? So that was about 50-50. I think it was like 57% involuntary and, and 43% uh um uh uh in, in invol, uh, 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 voluntary, I think. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting. So I look at the, I have these um uh I look at this and I think 43% of Lifequakes are voluntary. People are starting a new enterprise, right? They're moving, like they're embracing the opportunities of the linear life. I have all these millennials on my team who were my coders, and they look on this and I was like, whoa, 57% are involuntary. All my planning isn't going to come true. Like, you know, all of the things that I think and I'm going to write on my little whatever on my vision board or my, you know, I'm going to manifest in my diary, they're not going to happen. No, they're not going to all happen because. Uh, you know, illness is going to come along. Natural disasters are going to come along. You know, things are going to ha- go- going to happen. So that was one divide. The other divide I did was voluntary versus involuntary. And here, like, I'm, Wait, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm, I think sorry, you... I'm, I, I, I misspoke. The second one was personal versus collective. Mm, okay, caught. okay. So, um, and the smallest category was collective involuntary. Okay, I made a little grid. So a collective oh, wow. involuntary, it would be Vietnam, right? Or 9-11. Okay. And na- you know, a hurricane. Pandemic. Uh, well, this is, yeah. this is where I'm leading to. Oh, so okay. that was like, you know, like 10%. And I, and there's, as a writer, I would call this a throwaway line in my book where I was like, I need to comment on this because it's pretty profound. And what I say was, had we done this, had I done these conversations a century ago, Two world wars, depression, women's rights, civil rights, you know, um, we would have had many more collective involuntary. This shows that we're in a time where we can control our lives, Hmm. enter the pandemic. So the pandemic is the biggest collective involuntary life quake in a century. The entire planet is going through one at the same time. And obviously, it's been destructive. Obviously, we've lost millions of people. People have lost their livelihoods. A bunch of tragedy that we all, that we all witness and experience. And I don't, and I don't want to minimize that in any way, but what it has also done is created a break in the linear train, <laughs> right? So the linear progression, momentum, expectation, the kind of force in our lives was broken. Hmm. And as a result of the breaking, we then see more people starting enterprises, more people moving, more people getting out of relationships, more people saying, am I doing what I want to be doing? Because fundamentally what a lifequake is, is a meaning making exercise. Okay. Right. So it's a meaning vacuum when all the traditional sources of meaning and identity in our lives are sucked out. So we have to rethink, what do I want to be doing? Who do I want to be? Who do I want to be doing it with? Where do I want to be living? And that's the opportunity that these life quakes give us. Um, But the question is, what do we do? We don't know, which is where this toolkit comes in.
0: You know, it's so, man, you really just connected two dots for me. This concept, you know, because I, as a rabid non-traditionalist who dropped out of high school to become a jazz musician and has been, you know, twisting and turning ever since, I live in sort of a constant state of vexation about how I'll use your term, how linear people really want to be and try to be and pretend to be right.
1: It's like pretend that's a a good word. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah, I'm (laughs) like, I'm like life is actually way better if you just let go of this whole nonsense, but you know, people like you'll pry my linearity out of my cold, dead hands, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So so I think what you just connected for me helps me understand that better. And it is, You're right. Meaning, the meaning that we attach to things, depends on the linear context in which that thing exists, right? Things have meaning in juxtaposition to their past and their future and their relationship thereto. And if all of a sudden life is just this chaotic, like pinballing around from here to there and like nothing's connected, then in a sense, nothing means anything anymore. And that's like existentially terrifying. And so I love what you said that these disruptions. Are, are meaning-making machines where we're forced to create meaning because we lose the context that's been supplying it up to that point. So
1: to well, speak. that's exactly right. I mean, uh, uh, mostly, I mean, I think that what I would say is that the, is that the disruption or the life quake or the downsizing or the diagnosis or the tornado or the mm-hmm. pandemic or whatever it is, that isn't a meaning-making thing. That's the meaning vacuum. that okay. cre- That creates... The chaos, the fear, the anxiety, the unsureness. What is the meaning making exercise is the transition. That's the solution for how we get through it. And I think, and people react differently. I mean, what tends to happen when people get in a life quake is they do one of two things, okay? They either make a 212 item to do list and say, I'm going to get through it in a weekend and be the best ever and get a blue ribbon and isn't everyone going to be proud of me. Or, they lie in a fetal position under the covers with the cat and they say, no one's ever been through this other than me. And woe is me. And my life will never be the same. In effect, both are wrong, right? Because it is emotional, but there is a way through it. You're not going to get through it in a weekend and you don't want to, in a lot of ways, because a lot of these things kind of take time to figure out. So I think that what, you know, if, if I could summarize the reaction to the, my book, to the, my newsletter, to my TED talk. And this is a technical academic term, but it's phew, like you've you've put a language to these yeah. feelings that I have. I remember when I would wander around, I'm, I'm talking to you from my home office here in Brooklyn, and I did a lot of my interviews here and, and I would I was wandering around for years saying, why has there not been a book on life transitions in 40 years since the late 70s? Why is this not a term that we're talking about? And I think a lot of it is because of the power of grit and resilience and the idea that, that successful people you know, push through and don't show their emotions and you know, put their head down. That's just as damaging as the idea of linearity. Um, the idea that suffering is a badge of distinction for dealing with difficult times, no. In fact, one of my seven tools is share it with somebody else other people around you are going through it and they have wisdom too. And so don't keep it to yourself and stiff upper lip and soldier your way through that. That is a, also an outdated, mm-hmm. by the way, masculine, but that's an outdated idea that we don't, that we don't need to subscribe to actually sharing talking um, is a lot of, is, 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 is a way to get the help that you need.
0: So I have a, a couple questions and it's interesting. i even the term uh, it, it comes to mind that even that the the term that we use I think in a lot of these situations is to call it a setback. Yes, and that is implicitly a linear way to describe it, right? Um,
1: it's implicitly a linear way, and it's it, absolutely and it's implicitly a negative way. Yeah, exactly. And, they're not, and, they're well, not and I think
0: there there are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, in, exactly. In oh, interesting. Nice. <laughs> um, so. Well, one thing I'm curious about, and this is this is maybe getting a little a little uh, a little deep here, but you said that these, uh, the transitions, they they create, or I'm sorry, the disruptions create the chaos, create yes. the meaninglessness, create yes. the vacuum, right? And then the transition is the solution. I'm curious, do you think that it would be accurate? And this is going to say a lot, I guess, about your how you view the world and what you believe about it. If we substituted the word create for the word reveal would you agree with it that these these uh, disruptions reveal the chaos and reveal the meaninglessness that was always there or do you think that they are temporarily it temporarily creates chaos that is is then solvable
1: i think um i think it reveals the landscape that then you shape is what I think. So that I think that it reveals a pattern that has been there all along that you have not been seeing or allowing yourself to not see Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you think, Hey, it's working for me. I'm, you know, I got
0: it. And and, and we're wired to create (laughs) crave predictability so much that if we don't have it, we'll create it. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, But if you look at the greatest stories ever told, first of all, if you look at the spiritual ones, Mm -hmm. Okay, from Abraham leaving his family and going, going to a place that God doesn't even tell. Moses leading the Israelites into the desert. You know, Jesus going through the forty years. Paul on the road to Damascus. You know, Mohammed going out. uh, The Buddha going out into the wilderness over and over again in the spiritual stories. And if you look at the secular stories, okay, if you look at Jason and the Argonauts, Hercules. If you look at Orpheus. You know, if you look at the the Dante going down. If you look at the greatest. myths the greatest spiritual stories the greatest novels they all have this idea of a person who leaves the stable predictable safe world goes into the wilderness the desert the jungle the forest has a transformative experience and then comes back this this is a what what is revealed is the newness of the sameness of the experience that it's just never going to go always upward. There's always going to be this time in the darkness. What I think it's fair to say that you create is your path through the woods because there's not only one path. Through the woods. Um, and this is where, you know, uh, uh, I've been mentioning here, but we haven't really talked about it, the three phases, right? The long goodbye. Is the last one the, the I mean, is the first one the new beginning? Is the third one? The middle one is the messy middle. And the messy middle involves fundamentally two um, activities. One is shedding old mindsets. Oh. I like being married to you. I like it when my parent was still alive. I liked having that job and the status and the money that it came from. You know, I liked what I was like when I was um, drunk, but it's also getting rid of some habits. I didn't like when I was drunk. I didn't like when I was married to you. I didn't like being a people pleaser. I didn't like having a long commute and I want to change jobs or work from home. So you have to shed various things. And why do you shed? because it makes room for one of the most astonishing acts in this whole process, which is the creativity. And at the bottom of people's lives, they sing, they dance. I talked to people who took up ballet. I talked to a guy, his name is Zach Herrick. He was, he's um, he's uh, black, adopted by a white family in Kansas. He was a football player, ended up in the military, ended up in the army, ended up in Afghanistan, where he had his face shot off by the Taliban. 31 surgeries between the tip of his nose and the tip of his chin, including having his tongue sewn back on. He talked about displacement, suicide ideation. He thought his life was over. Then someone said, you know what? You need to learn to cook because your tastes have changed. So he says, I learned to poach salmon and to cook pork chops. And like suddenly girls wanted to go out with me because I could cook. He then starts to write poetry and then he starts to paint. He says, I used to get out my aggression by splattering the enemy with bullets. Now I get it out by splattering the canvas with paint. He's now married um, uh, with a child and and, and running a a new company in Virginia. People do use creation And not to go back to the pandemic, but let me go one more time to say, what was the cliche in those early months? What did people do? They started baking. We're going to sourdough our way through it. I may have been the least surprised person in America because that simple act of imagining a loaf of bread or a poem or a painting or a painted birdhouse or a garden allows you to imagine you can make yourself anew. So I think it reveals... The opportunity, which you then have to seize, and that's the act of creation. And of course, what is the ultimate story in the beginning of the Bible? Well, how do we get through chaos? It's creation.
0: Man, I, you just gave so much support to this. This sort of it's of, you know so on, a little bit of context. Entra my my education platform you know we've essentially built what i would call an entrepreneurial uh, operating system or, or we call it entrepreneurial life design it's like frameworks for living i would i think i like your language frameworks for living a non-linear life and still mm. being able to pay the bills so to speak yes. right like um, and one of the the pieces of the framework that i've always had the most you know uncertainty around like did i really get it right is in the way that we architect professional, the professional arena of life, you know, which most people fundamentally think of as either the money they make or the title they hold. Right. And I've, we, we break it down into what we call three value channels, which are finances, authority, and create, and, and creativity is the third one. And I have this fundamental belief that a truly rich and fulfilling professional life is going to have some element of like creativity with uniqueness such that like you're you're making your indelible imprint on the world through the work that you do in it right and i've always wondered is that just me projecting because i'm a i'm a a, j- a former jazz musician and i think that everybody in the world needs to be an artist or is it really elemental that we need to create as part of our profession ie what we profess within the world and at least right now i'm putting another another point on the side of yes, that creativity is elemental to professional fulfillment. So thank you for that. Um, I want to also add, and I know that we're about out of time and you have a hard stop. So I'm going to be very quick here, but I also just have to say this idea of, did you say it was 43% of transitions are voluntary and 57 are involuntary? Um, Or was it 47 and 53?
1: Hey, um, you know, I'm going to actually have, I have life is in the transitions in front of me. I'm While
0: gonna, you're looking that up, I will yes. just say that if there is one thing that I can, I can find as a, as a connective thread through almost everybody that enrolls in Entra and my platform, it's that they're going through some sort of transition. Yes. And that's why they're looking for this change. And that's why I'm so interested is I'm actually going to share with our team, like, Hey guys, I think we have data here. Like all these people that are transitioning, here's how many of them are, it's by choice and here's how many it's by chance. So I'm, I'm curious, what, what was the number? I'm on
1: page 81 of Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age by Bruce Feiler. Um, yeah, by the way, when's that interesting person coming on board this conversation? And it says that 57% of life quakes, um, and this is based on thousands of them that I have analyzed, are involuntary. Involuntary. And okay. 43% are voluntary.
0: Thank you, that's wonderful. I, I'm going to just tell you straight up. I wish we did not have to end this conversation because I think the jury is going to render a most interesting man alive verdict <laughs> uh, or at least maybe one of them. At least uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I am so grateful. What a, I cannot wait to read that book. I, I haven't read it. Uh, Life is in the transitions. I am going to read this. Uh, it's on audible or on audiobook,
1: I assume. I read it in 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 literally in a closet in in an Airbnb in my own house during the pandemic because we couldn't Ugh. go to a uh, we couldn't go to a studio so I read it my own uh, my own self.
0: I totally know that experience. My this is my book. It's actually being published in 14 days. It'll be in bookstores and I, I know that cl- I was- I was in a studio, but it was effectively a closet. I know the closet. <laughs> I spent about 24 hours in that closet. Um, listen, Bruce, I know you have to go. How can the world go get more of you? You mentioned BruceFiler.com. Where yeah, else? Yeah, brucefeiler,
1: F-E-I-L-E-R.com. Uh, As I said, there's a, a TED Talk, uh, How to Master um, a Life Transition that this week will hit a million views. Um, life is in the Transitions is a New York Times bestseller um, as I said I have a, um, a newsletter I'm at, at Bruce Filer at all social media um, I have a newsletter on Bulletin it's brucefeiler.bulletin.com or go to my website and link to it and you know what uh, what I believe is that we're not going to get through this alone we're all in transitions and let's master them together and uh, I appreciate um, all the connections and uh, 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 let's do it again
0: yeah, that'd be wonderful. The nice thing about nonlinear living is we're more apt to bump into each other if we're not going in straight lines, right? Hey, it's Jeff here. If you liked this episode of Unlock Your Potential, it would mean so much if you would like and share the episode on whatever platform you're listening or viewing on. And if you really like what we're doing here and you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review. There is so much work that goes into these episodes, and you leaving a positive review lets us know that that work is reaching people. And especially it helps us reach other people. Your review could be the reason that someone else decides to tune in, check out this podcast and unlock their potential and ultimately level up the quality of their life. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your support and for listening, and especially if you like or share or leave a review, thank you for helping us spread the word and thank you for unlocking your potential to go make the world and your world a better place.